The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So let's go to Luke 14, uh, and we're going to finish this passage today. Um, and the title is, Jesus Confronts Legalism, and it's uh, Religious Legalism. And this type of religious legalism is religious legalism that's supposedly based on Scripture or the Bible, biblical religious legalism. We've already talked about that. Uh, And we found Jesus here in Luke 14, just the big context. Um, By way of reminder, we've gone through so much of Jesus' ministry. He had about a a three-and-a-half-year public ministry where he had one mission, and that was proclaiming the kingdom of God and calling sinners to repentance, offering himself as the Savior, the fulfillment of the promised Messiah, starting with his own people, the Jews. So he limited his ministry to the small country area there of Israel. Spent most of his time in his headquarters up in northern Israel, where he grew up there in Nazareth of Galilee and occasionally go down south, especially during feast day, Passover and other required feast days at the temple. And did that for over three years proclaiming the message, calling to repentance, validating it through his miracles, uh, gaining a few disciples, or at least intrigued followers, wherever he went, but also was accumulating enemies along the way from the religious establishment, the experts on the Old Testament, and we've learned that. And they were the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were the caretakers of the religion And even the political and social life of Israel at the time, they were supposed to be God's representatives. They were really supposed to be the shepherds of the people, loving the people on behalf of God. And they they were compromised in that. And Jesus has been preaching to them and also confronting them, challenging them uh, all throughout his ministry for three and a half years. And we've seen that in the Gospel of Luke. And so uh, Jesus was faithfully in the north for three years, and now he's headed, made a deliberate decision to go to the cross because he knew it was time His time was at hand, the end of his ministry, and so now he's leaving the north and heading down slowly to Jerusalem to intersect perfectly with God's time clock of being available to die during the Passover week where he would die as the blessed Lamb of God in perfect fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so that's where Jesus is. He's en route now going down south, going back and forth. He crosses over the Jordan, back over. Uh, Luke isn't real specific about details of his uh, trip there other than just the time frame that it's about a three to six month period where Jesus is heading to the cross for one purpose and that is to die for sinners and along the way he's training his 12 apostles getting them ready and prepared including Judas he's preparing Judas for Judas's work and that is to be the betrayer to hand Jesus over to be crucified in fulfillment of scripture and yet he's doing it of his own volition he's accountable for what he's going to do So Jesus is really pouring into his 12 apostles. Now he spent three years with the masses. He also spent three years proclaiming truth to the leadership, scribes, uh, Sadducees, lawyers, uh, Pharisees, the Herodians. And just so if you put all four books together, the Gospels, uh, it was after about three years, maybe even a little before that, where Jesus already, he rendered a verdict on the Jewish leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees, a formal verdict. He discerned their heart, their collective attitude, which was categorical rejection of him as the Savior. That's why none of the Pharisees submitted to the baptism of John the Baptist, not one of them, because they did not want to endorse the ministry of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has had so many interactions already with the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees. So he he knew where they were, that they categorically rejected him as their Messiah. And so he rendered a verdict a couple of times. He did it in John chapter 8 after much ministry, where he told them point blank of their face, when they said, we are of our father Abraham, we are the true Jews. And Jesus said, no, you are of your father, the devil. You are from Satan. He said that publicly. Because they had already been trying to kill him for years. And that just fueled the hateful fire all the more. John chapter 8, we saw in John 13 as well. Here it's three years of ministry has gone by, and Jesus just had another encounter with the Jewish leadership and the Jews as he was speaking to massive crowds. And he said in chapter 13, categorically, 
letting them know that the kingdom of God, when it's time for the kingdom of God, at the gathering of Abraham, Jacob, uh, and the prophets in the kingdom of God, you yourselves are going to be thrown out. That was an indictment on primarily the Jewish leadership that was alive in that day. You're going to be thrown out into outer darkness. And God's going to invite and welcome Gentiles. God forbid. He's going to let Gentiles into the kingdom of God in the last day. And then also in chapter 13, uh, he, as he was approaching Jerusalem, he cried over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who uh, sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you. I desired. He's talking about his three-year ministry. How often... He was going around preaching, gathering the children of Israel, preaching to them, pleading with them, calling to the repentance, offering himself as the Savior. How often I wanted to gather your children, O Israel, together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. You wouldn't accept me as the Savior. And as a result, he rendered that verdict. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, empty, vacant. In other words, God is forsaking you. God is abandoning you, Yahweh the Messiah of your Old Testament. He's abandoning you. He's rejecting you because you have rejected his Messiah. So that's true of almost the entirety of the Jewish religious leadership. So for the next three to six months in Luke 14 through 19, all we're going to see is more and more conflict of the Jewish leadership just trying to figure out a way to humiliate Jesus, shame him, uh, get him to stumble so that they can arrest him falsely accuse him, and then execute him and get rid of him once and for all. That's their goal. That's their mission. So that's what we're going to, this theme keeps coming up. And the sad irony is that these were the most religious people in the land at the time, the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the irony. The most religious people and also the most biblically informed people on the earth at the time had knowledge and a lot of it. And that's the danger of legalism. Legalism, the exterior of just accumulating truth and doctrine and head knowledge and Bible facts and data, processing that, memorizing that, living by that, touting that, vaunting that, being proud of it, and yet you miss it on the inside, you miss it in the heart. It's not tempered and processed with true humility from the inside, from the Spirit of God. And as a result, you've got a a monster on your hands, and that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were religiously speaking monsters, looked good on the outside, wore long robes, very religious, at all the public assemblies, ran the synagogues and temples, and yet on the inside, full of hate, utter monsters who would kill the blessed Messiah. There are people like that today. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, if you don't know the God of the universe, by bowing the knee through repentance, then every single one of us is a prospect and can be such a wicked, evil monster with nothing but hate in our heart towards God and our fellow man. That's the wickedness of the human heart that the Bible diagnoses for us, and Jesus does as well. He doesn't just diagnose it. He exposes it, and that's what this scene is all about. That's why Luke put it in Luke 14. This is something we need to hear, where Jesus is going along in his ministry, heading to Jerusalem. He's invited to this private dinner by one of the key leaders in that area. He was a ruler of the Pharisees, meaning he was prominent and he was probably in charge of a synagogue or a system of synagogues. He was an authority. He was respected. He was feared. He was looked up to. People were in awe of him. That's this Pharisee. Uh, Jesus ends up at a private meal uh, on the Sabbath with him in his house. It's in his house, it says literally. It is apparently by invitation only because we saw that there were invited guests, Pharisees and lawyers, that Jesus has already addressed. He speaks to at this dinner. It's a major meal, by invitation only, by someone of prominence. Jesus is invited, and so we've already seen that, how once Jesus apparently accepted the invitation, he walks in, and everybody in there, the Pharisee and all of his friends and the lawyers, they are watching Jesus like a hawk, watching his every move so they can catch him, so they can trap him. That's the point. This is a trap. We already saw that, and then they sit down at their meals. They didn't sit down in chairs and at tables like we do that are elevated. They laid down on the floor on pillows, and they may have had little short tables on the floor where the food stood, and there was a configuration that was formal and specific, usually at these kind of banquets and meals, and we talked about how it was probably kind of a U-shape, 
and at the very point in the head of the U was usually the host. And then his honored guests would be on the right hand and on the left hand, and then in descending order. We even see that in the story of Joseph when in Genesis, when Joseph was the Pharaoh and he had a banquet and a meal and he invited his brothers, and there was an arranged order by which Joseph's brothers sat, and apparently Benjamin was sitting in the honored seat, and everybody, all of his brothers noticed it. And the same thing here, that was just customary. And so we don't know where Jesus was sitting, uh, but we saw how uh, their goal was to trap him by doing a miracle on the Sabbath, and because they knew Jesus cared for people, that was his uh, one of. His, if Jesus had a flaw, it was he cared for people. According to them, his weakness, he cared for people. He'd do anything to minister to someone out of compassion, out of love, and even do a miracle of healing. They've seen that, they knew that, and so they had apparently a plant, a guy who was sick at this dinner, who normally wouldn't be invited because he was sick, he was ceremonially unclean, would never be allowed in a Pharisee's house at a meal. But this guy was, because they were hypocritical and had a double standard. And so uh, this guy had this disease that was utterly visible, you could see it, Uh, just that Greek word we talked about, how he's filled with water from his organs breaking down on the inside, um, known by different words, dropsy, edema is the more common word, and you looked at him, he probably looked like some kind of inflated elephant man, and you knew this man was uh, sick, and maybe on the throes of death, depending upon how far along it was. Interesting, uh, as they all come in, and they're watching Jesus carefully, a couple things are going on, uh, they're watching Jesus carefully as he's coming in, yet Jesus is watching them, so we don't know where Jesus' seat was, but he came and laid down, got his place, and as soon as Jesus laid down, apparently, he's watching all the invited guests uh, fight over the best seats at the table. They literally, these are grown men, not third grade boys. Far, uh, fighting and arguing over the best seat, throwing elbows. And Jesus is just sitting there watching this. He's observing. He's not saying anything until later. But it's a manifestation of where their heart is. They are utterly self-centered and selfish. And they want the approval of men. That's all they're cared about. And this was their pattern. Jesus says this time and time again. All you Pharisees care about and Sadducees, is being seen by men, honored by men, being called big names, running around in your long flowing robes and having the honored seats at the banquets. You hypocrites. He's said that publicly several times. So that's what they're doing, jockeying for position. Well, Jesus has probably got his place where he's laying down. And then they all finally come in. We don't know how many were there. The apostles probably were not there. So this is Jesus against all the Pharisees and hand-picked select lawyers who were experts in the law. That's why it says lawyers, because this Pharisee, one of the Pharisees weren't all lawyers and experts in the law like the lawyers and the scribes were, so that's why there were lawyers there to catch Jesus violating a law, a legal breach. Therefore, we've got him in a court of law. That was the idea. So they're all watching him, sitting down, and apparently they all sit down, if you just get this in your mind, the setting, and, and then it says, uh, you can tell dinner's about to begin, oh, by the way, what else happened as they all sat down? No doubt, they were, the, all the Pharisees said they were doing ceremonial cleansing. We know that from the gospel of Mark and other gospels. That's what they did before they ate, because they always criticized Jesus and his apostles. Uh, you don't cleanse your hands before you eat. You're, you're dirty, you're filthy. Why not? That was another legalistic thing. So they're all doing that, and they're talking and passing that around. Jesus who knows, he probably maybe didn't clean his hands because he didn't in other situations. Which would have been awkward. You have a meal of 27 people there and they're all passing the basin around and bending over backwards to publicly be seen doing their ritual of cleansing their hands, which wasn't just a sanitary issue, it was a religious act. They thought, when approval from Yahweh. And Jesus' habit is, he's not washing his hands with this man-made ritual. So that alone, they're sitting there, it's awkward, it is uncomfortable, they're, they're doing their rituals, Jesus is there, they're, they, uh, the servants are washing their feet or whatever, then they're done with that, then the food is probably laid out by the servants, and as they're ready to begin the meal, everybody's sitting down, there's utter silence, no one has said anything to Jesus as far as we know. And then all of a sudden it said, Jesus answered them 
and set. Which we didn't really highlight that, but that was just interesting that Jesus answered them, but nobody said anything. He wasn't responding to a criticism or a question. Jesus answered them. In other words, Jesus had to say something because uh, the, the situation demanded a statement, demanded an explanation, it demanded an action, it demanded a question. That's why it says Jesus answered them. And what prompted that was as they're sitting down and all the food is placed strategically all over the place, there's Jesus at his place where he's supposed to eat and in front of him is maybe the main meal or the basted turkey or I don't know what it was, and then just some sick man sitting right in front of him. By the way, it doesn't say that the man who was sick was laying before him. It doesn't say he was sitting before him. It just said he was there, prominently right next to Jesus, literally in Jesus' face at the meal. And we didn't mention this either, but maybe the man with drops, he was just standing there in front of Jesus. Can you imagine how awkward that would be? Everybody there is laying down, ready to eat. And then over by Jesus, there's this man who is sick as can be, and everybody knows it. He's unclean, and he's standing literally right in front of Jesus. It's like, well, you're blocking my view. Oh, this is awkward. Who's that guy? That's why Jesus answered. This this demanded uh, an explanation. And so that's when Jesus asked a question. First, he asked a question. Silenced them, they couldn't answer it. It's basically, um, is it against the law to be kind to somebody on the Sabbath? Is it against the law to love somebody on the Sabbath? Is that okay with you guys? You lawyers? Can I do the greatest act possible and actually heal a man instantly? Is that okay? With the greatest act of love? Is that against your law? Is that against the law of Moses? And it says, here they're experts on the law, and they kept silent. They had nothing to say. How absurd and foolish would they look if Jesus said, is it uh, against your law to love somebody on the Sabbath? And they said, yes, it's against the law. You can't do nice things on the Sabbath. You can't love people on the Sabbath. That's what they would have had to say. That's why they were silent. And Jesus grabbed this man. Remember, you're not supposed to touch somebody unclean, especially when you're about to eat. Embraced this man and instantly he was healed. Poof, perfectly, right in front of their eyes. And then he sent the man away. Celebrate the Sabbath. Celebrate uh, the fulfillment of having rest in your life and knowing that the Savior did it for you. Sent him away. Didn't belong there anyway. He was just a pawn. And then Jesus does the miracle, and you would think that you know most people just bow down in awe. No. They're hardened all the more. They're as arrogant as can be. So Jesus asks them a follow-up question, which they can't answer again. So they're rebuked by virtue of their silence. Their heart hasn't changed. Jesus knows it. And so then he goes on to tell three parables. And he's already assessed everything. He's diagnosed everything. He's seen their lack of response and also their bad attitudes. And the Father may have given them a glimpse of what's in their heart. And so that's why he gave three spontaneous parables to diagnose where these religious legalists are at. And that's the main point. Three parables all in a row. Three parables completely spontaneous. Three parables divine revelation. Three parables utterly profound. Three parables exposing perfectly what is wrong with the hearts of these people? Three parables that we can learn from and apply still three 2,000 years later, just as relevant as ever. Because sin is always the same. Pride is always the same. Legalism, religious legalism, it's always the same. So it doesn't matter when it happened. That's why these parables are still appropriate for us, like they were written yesterday. Amazing. So Jesus tells the first parable, and he addresses it to those, the guests Remember, Jesus is an invited guest, and yet he speaks up and he just takes charge. He is the authority. He is the master. He is the rabbi. He's the sovereign Lord. He fears no one. What an amazing scene. And he tells this short little parable for one purpose, and that was to rebuke them. To shatter their pride, to shatter their security and false religion, to expose them for what they really were, total hypocrites. He just rips the veil away and exposes their heart. And the main point of that parable was uh, when you go to an invited guest's house, don't fight for the best position in the seats of honor. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Be a humble person. Humble yourself most of all before God. And when you humble yourself, God will exalt you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, says Peter and James. They got that lesson from Jesus. Have lowliness of mind. 
Don't be thinking about yourself all the time, exalting yourself, puffing up yourself. True religion is about humility before God, which gives you humility before other people, which gives you an objective mindset about yourself. We are completely undeserving because God is so great. Our sin is so horrific compared to his holiness. Be humble. That's the summary of his parable. Remember how parables have one main truth? This is an exhortation. Quit being so religiously uh, stuffy and humble yourself before Almighty God. That's what he said to the guests. Then he turned to the host and rebuked him through a parable, which we've already seen. And you know what? You went about it the wrong way. You continue to go about it all the wrong way. You just keep inviting all of your friends, people who want to give you something in return. You, you are self-serving, mister. He's saying this to the host at dinner. You're self-serving, and you pass your, yourself off as being self-sufficient. So that's, that's the issue for this guy, self-sufficiency. He felt good about himself in a standing before Almighty God. He has wealth, he has power, he has prestige, he has position, he has friends of wealth who can return favors. He's calling the shots. Completely, utterly self-sufficient in every respect of what this world has to offer. And that's why Jesus told and warned his disciples on more than one occasion that it is virtually impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. A rich man, somebody who is completely content with what they have in this. They don't need a savior. That's the point. They don't need anybody. They don't need a God. No, I'm good. You've probably witnessed to people like that. No, I'm good. Jesus is offering himself a savior. No, I'm, I'm good. That was this guy's problem. So the point of that parable is, after giving the other parable, you need to be humble. Humble yourself before God. This was, uh, don't be self-sufficient because you're not. Sufficiency comes from only one. And it is through humility and a recognition of not having self-sufficiency that you can attain to the resurrection and being right with God at the end of the age. And then one of the uh, guests at the meal after hearing both parables and knowing that their rebuke intervenes, doesn't like Jesus' comment, rebuts Jesus publicly and basically says, Hear, hear, blessed are those who enter into the kingdom of God. That was a rebuttal to Jesus. Well, that man would not have the last word. Now Jesus gives one more spontaneous parable to counter what this guy just said. Because this guy is affirming, oh, hear, hear, everybody that enters the kingdom of God. What he's saying is, yeah, it doesn't matter what you just said in your two parables by rebuking all of us and publicly shaming us, Jesus, and saying we're not right with Yahweh. No, we're going to the kingdom of God. And their believing and thinking was, we're going to the kingdom of God because we're Jews, and we're going to the kingdom of God because we are literally blood descendants of Abraham, inheritors of the Abrahamic covenant guaranteed. That's what he was saying. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. We're in. We don't accept your rebuke. Oh, okay. So Jesus gives one more. And that's this parable, uh, 16 through 24. And that's why in verse 16 it said, uh, but he said to him, he said to that man who spoke up defending the host of the meal. And then he gives this parable. We read the parable last week and explained the parable on the surface, but we didn't give the spiritual meaning or the interpretation of what Jesus intended. Because as the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the host, as they're listening to the parable, uh, they're not offended by it. It's, it's quite uh, humorous, actually. It's quite lighthearted. Oh, this is silly. No one would do that. Of course, that's absurd. That was probably their attitude, because if you read it at face value, that's at surface level, that's the way it comes across. And many Jesus' parables, they are. Uh, at face value, many times they over-exaggerate. If you're reading them at face value, sometimes you think they're, oh, that's a little foolish or silly or absurd or nobody thinks that way or no, that, that could never happen. So that's their attitude. Probably nonchalant, jovial, jocular, ha-ha, superficial, ribbing each other. Is there, he's, Jesus is telling this silly story, verses 16 to 23. Grand banquet, master uh, invites uh, people to the, this just lavish banquet 
that anybody would want to go to. People covet going to those kind of things. Of course, no one would turn it down if they were invited to this kind of a banquet, certainly. But then Jesus says, well, there were three examples of people who didn't go, and those three represented everybody that was invited. Nobody went that was invited. No, but that's why I see the, how extreme and absurd and silly. As Jesus is exaggerating, as he often does, as a great, excellent teacher, to be emphatic and make a point. Do you get it? He's exaggerating. It says all, all, all turned down. Many were invited. All turned it down. Well, how can this be? Oh, that's ridiculous. So the master got angry, the guy that invited. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'd get angry too. The host of this meal, this was a dinner that they were at. They're sitting at this meal, can relate. The host there, if he invited all his buddies and all of his guests and nobody showed up, he would be angry. Verse 21, that makes sense. So they're, they're probably following along. Yeah, this is silly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that whatever, who referred. Yeah, that probably applies to them. All the way to verse 23. So 16 to 23. It's just a, a neutral uh, parable. That doesn't apply to anybody. It's just generic. So no doubt they were not offended. But then Jesus was done at the end of verse 23. And then we saw this last week when we were closing verse 24. He's talking to the one guy. And he's speaking generically third person pronouns. And then in verse 24, he turns it on them. And he says, but I tell you. Plural. Everybody at this meal. Including you, the guy that spoke up first. That didn't like what I had to say. And including you, the host. And all you Pharisees and all you lawyers, I tell you. This is a repeated phrase throughout the four Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I say to you, that's one of his favorite phrases, and it always means the same thing. He turns the guns on his audience, whoever he's talking about, and he applies a spiritual truth that's generic, and he personalizes it and tailors it and caters it to the listener. Get ready. Whether it's good or whether it's a rebuke. For I say to you. None of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Uh, Many times at the end of a parable when Jesus said, For I tell you, or he gives the application, particularly he's speaking a parable to the Pharisees. uh, Sometimes the gospel writer will let us know the reaction of the audience. And they became angry. They became incensed because they knew he was speaking of them. Smoke coming out of their ears. Well, we don't know what happens. It's just, that's it. End of story. I think they got the message. They were already taken on a whirlwind of emotions in a very short span of time throughout this lunch of the events that happened. Incredible. And the words that Jesus spoke. So... What I wanted to do today is I want to give you the, the meaning of the parable, verse by verse. Uh, sticking to my principle that I believe parables, when Jesus told them, there's one main truth. One main truth. But all the details in it do, with beautiful symmetry, inform and buttress and support the main truth. And if you are not familiar with the Old Testament... If you haven't read through the entire Old Testament, followed its history, know the basic theme and its details, or it's been a while, you're not going to be able to fully appreciate this parable. As a matter of fact, if you're a newer Christian and never read the Old Testament, this, the majority of this parable is just going to whoosh, be right over your head. So you have to know Old Testament history, which is about the Jews, which is who the audience is. It's the Jews, it's the Jews of the Jews. The creme de la creme, it's the cream of the crop, it's the Pharisees, Sadducees. These guys, they were Jews, they were the elite Jews, and they were the masters of the Old Testament. That's why it's so important to understand Old Testament truth, Old Testament history, because it's all bound up and wound up here, even the crescendo of his exclamation point at the end. So we'll give you a little Old Testament background to fully understand and appreciate as we go through. And now I'm just going to give you the interpretation. I'd say the main, what is the main truth here of this parable? The, the main truth, very simply, is that it is a rebuke, a clear rebuke of the religious leaders who thought they were right with God by virtue of their bloodline being born of Abraham and they thought they were in with Yahweh. It's a rebuke to them and Jesus is letting them know, no, you don't know God at all and as a matter of fact, you never will. You've been cut off from Yahweh. 
You've been rejected by Yahweh because you've rejected his only Savior, me, the Messiah. That's the, that's the point. The Jews have been rejected. And, and not just this little cadre of uh, 27 guys, or however many men are here. This is collective. For three plus years, he has been rejected, hounded by, chased down, having debates and arguments with the hard-hearted leadership of Israel, which would be those Pharisees, Sadducees. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. There were an entire network that dotted its way from north to south of all of Israel. They controlled it all. The entire leadership network is being rejected by Jesus Christ here. There's a grand banquet. God's invited people to it, particularly the Jews, and you won't be there. That's the point of the parable. A severe, scathing Rebuke. He already, we just read how he just said this in chapter 13, where he, he repeated it just a few months earlier. Maybe some of these men who were at this dinner were there when he said, you know what? You're going to be cast out. I know you're Jews, but you're not, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God. The Gentiles are going to be invited and enjoying. Many of them too, but you're not in. And his follow-up statement that, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've rejected the, you've rejected the greatest prophet of all, me. You're out. That's the point of this parable. Rejection of Israel, its leadership, rejection of the majority of the people in Israel at the time that he's preached to because it was the supermajority that rejected Jesus Christ for three entire years. It's just a minority. It's the remnant, a very small fraction of people actually heed Jesus' call to repentance. Few there be that find it. That's been his message. The Jews, of all people, that should be embracing the Savior but it's a very small minority. That's why John, in John chapter 1, verse 11, it introduces who Jesus truly is from eternity past and that he came into this world as the God-man and lived in Israel and was witnessed by people and he came to his own as the Savior of the world and he was the light of the world. And then in verse 11 it says, and he came unto his own, that's Israel, and his own received him not. They literally, they welcomed him not. They rejected the Savior. That's a summary statement from John after looking back at the ministry of Jesus Christ in his first coming, he came to his own and his own received him not. Israel collectively rejected Jesus, their own Savior. Only a minority believed. Only a few believed. That's the point of the parable. But just a little background. Let's go to, I want to go to Exodus chapter 3. Actually, go to, uh, we'll go to Genesis 12 real quick and then just look at a couple of passages and then we'll get back to our parable and hopefully this will... Uh, give you some context, historical context, because it is a historical parable. All the commentaries I read, they said the same thing. To me, it was a no-brainer. you got to know Old Testament history. In Genesis chapter 12, this is one of the chapters in the Bible you should know if you're a Christian. Because this is where God introduces the Abrahamic covenant. If you're a Christian today, are you a participant of the Abrahamic covenant. And you said, yes, absolutely. If you're a Christian, is the Abrahamic covenant in play and going on today? And you said, yes, absolutely. So that's why you need to be familiar with the Abrahamic covenant. Here's where it was introduced in history. 2000 BC, God calls Abram the pagan. He's not a Christian. He's an idol worshiper, 75 years old. And God in his grace not because Abram deserved it. God in his grace to somebody who didn't deserve it, who was a sinner, God shows him grace and elects him. Elects him. Temporally in this life for something special, eternally for salvation for all time. He elected Abraham. His election in the Bible, it's right here. God elected Abraham. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12, and he says, go forth from your country over there in uh, Babylon and Ur and... Iraq and Iran, 500 miles away, leave your country, your pagan country, all your idol worship and all your relatives who worship idols with you. Leave them. Leave your father's house to the land that I will show you, the promised land. He didn't even know where it was yet. And I will make you a great nation. There it is. I'm going to make you a great nation. That nation would be Israel, a great nation. And I will bless you personally. I'll bless that nation, but I also bless you personally personally. Abram, I'm going to make your name great, your reputation, uh, so you shall also be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. I will bless those who bless the nation of Israel as well. That was true all throughout history. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse 
you and in you, Abram, and through the nation of Israel, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is the gospel to the Gentiles, by the way. That's the good news, according to Galatians. Through you, Abram, through your loins, I'm going to bless not just Israel. I'm not just going to create a nation that will be mine, and I will, and they will be Israel, but I'm also going to have you as the channel and Israel as the conduit of blessing to the world, to the ends of the earth, to Gentiles. If you're not a Jew today and you are saved, you are right here in verse 3. Hallelujah. Through the Abrahamic covenant. Thank you, God. Thank you for giving us Abraham because it was the Messiah who came through the loins of Abraham as a Jew. To be the savior of the world. But that promise had to happen. He had to become the father of a nation. He's 75 years old. His wife is 65. They wait another 14 years. Then he's 99 and she's 89 and she still is not pregnant. She's never had a child, Sarah, his wife. How do I have a nation if I can't even have a child? I'm barren. And she was. And then God did a miracle when she was 90 and she was with child and that's when Isaac was in her womb and she gave birth. And through, it was through Isaac would come the nation of Israel through time would come the Savior. So this is the Abrahamic covenant. And it's an eternal covenant. It will go on forever. It can't be undone. It's all throughout the Bible. The rest of the Bible is basically an implementation of the Abrahamic covenant. Well, what about the new covenant? Well, that's part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The new covenant is fulfillment Related to the Abrahamic covenant. It's a man, the new covenant is a manifestation of the Abrahamic covenant. So that's why this is so important. So basically the main point there in 2000 BC, God promised Abram, I'm going to create a nation through you. It will be the nation of Israel and it will be a blessing to the world because primarily the Messiah will come through the nation of Israel to be a savior for all people. That's 2000 BC. Fast forward to 1450 BC and go to Exodus Chapter 3. So, God gave the promise to Abram. To make a nation, you need people. He had to wait for that first child. Okay, we got Isaac, but we need more than that. And then there's Jacob. Okay, we need more than that. And then Jacob marries. And then he ends up with 12 sons, will be the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they'll all get married and they'll have children. And then God will begin to grow his nation called Israel. And that's what happens in the book of Genesis and early in the book of Exodus. And so over the course of hundreds of years, from the time of Abraham to Moses, from 2000 B.C. to 1450 B.C., God grows the nation of Israel from one man named Abram to a multitude of people that are now slaves in Egypt of over one million people, one million Hebrews. And the Egyptians don't like it. The Pharaoh doesn't like it. They are there. They came when they were small with 74 people. We let them stay in the land of Goshen right there. They didn't bug us. We didn't bug them. Now they're like cockroaches all over, the, all over the place. They outnumber us. And that's why he put them to slavery. Over a million Hebrews, a million Israelites, a million Jews. And they're now enslaved. And they're treated brutally by Pharaoh who hates God and hates the truth. And the people are crying out to God. The Jews are. The Israelites are crying out to God. Save us, Yahweh. They're crying out to God. And God, Yahweh, he hears their cry. And he's going to be faithful to the Abrahamic covenant. I promised Abraham that I would create a nation, which would be the Jews. And they would be my people. And I will be faithful to them. And I will watch over them. And I will shepherd them. And they will be the apple of my eye. So I need to take action. And I need to rescue them. I need to save them. And that's what he does. And that's... Exodus chapter 3. So you fast forward to Moses now who's 80 years old. 40 years he was in the palace in Egypt getting the finest education in the world. Then he left there and then he ends up for 40 years as a shepherd in Midian which is to the east of the Sinai Peninsula working for his father-in-law Jethro. Now he's an old man, maybe 80 years old. And then God makes a move. Here's the prayer of the Jews, and that's what chapter 3 is. 1450 B.C., now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro's father-in-law in Midian, and he led the flock that he was in charge of, and he came to a mountain, the mountain of God called Horeb, the mountain of God. This is down at the Sinai Peninsula. He had to travel a long way to go from Midian down to that Sinai Peninsula where the mountain of God was, a distinct, specific mountain called Mount Horeb. It's also called Mount Sinai. 
Verse 2, the angel of the Lord. The angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. So it's an angel. We don't know what it looked like. We don't know if it had a human personage to it. We know the angel talked. The angel spoke. The angel is called God. The angel of the Lord is God here. The angel of the Lord was in the bush. God was in the bush. God is infinite. God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. He was in the bush. How is that possible? I don't know. Miraculous. The angel of the Lord. There's the angel of the Lord in Genesis several times. And in the book of Judges, and it, it, it seems to be a pre-incarnate theophany of the manifestation of possibly the Logos, the pre-incarnate Christ, representing God, because he is God. But the angel of the Lord is God. Notice, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared in a blazing fire in the midst of the bush. Moses saw the burning bush. So Moses said in verse 3, I must turn aside now and see this wonderful sight. In verse 4, Yahweh saw that Moses turned aside to look, and God called to him from the midst of the bush. See, that's how we know this is God. This is deity. In some kind of personage form of an angel. So he called out to Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. And then God said, Do not come near. Remove your sandals, for this is holy ground. In verse 6, God also said, I am God. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. There it is. The Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled. I want to build a nation and use the nation as a conduit of blessing to the world and bring my Messiah through them. I'm going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And you're going to be a part of the plan, Moses. I am God. And then Moses does the appropriate thing. He hid his face from God. He was afraid to look at God. And then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, the Israelites who are in Egypt. I've seen their affliction. And I have given heed to their cry. God responds to the prayers of his people. God responds to the prayers of his people. Did you pray this week? Did you pray to your God? Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe it listens to you? Are you tired of waiting? Do we lack patience? How come you're not doing something, God? We struggle with that all the time, don't we? And God reassures us here to Moses. No, I, I heard. I hear the cries. These cries, by the way, have been going on for years from his people. But God's timing is always perfect, and God's timing almost is never coinciding with our timing. That's the problem. That's why we get frustrated. But keep persevering in prayer. Keep waiting. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Something is when you're praying and you don't see any action down here, no, there's all kinds of action going up, up in heaven. God's doing stuff. He's preparing stuff. Maybe he sent some commissioning angels, and they're on their way, and they've been root for three weeks, and then they ran into some demon angel, and they're having a fight up in heaven ready to bring the courier of the message of fulfillment to your situation. That's spiritual warfare. That's the book of Daniel. That's reality. But God's great promise, I have come. Uh, I've seen their affliction, verse 7, of my people. So that's true of us. We are his people today, the church, those who love Jesus Christ. He has seen your affliction. He has heard your cry. He's committed to answering your prayer in perfect harmony with his will. I've given heed to their cry. Here's what I'm going to do. Verse 8, so I have come down. That's amazing. I have come down. The transcendent, almighty, infinite God of the universe. I have come down. He's making a move. I have come down to deliver. There it is. Not only has he come down with his literal presence, that he will abide with Israel in his literal presence in the tabernacle and the temple, and then ultimately the greatest presence of all on earth is Jesus Christ tabernacled on the earth for 33 years. I have come down. That's what the God of the Bible does. He comes down to be with his people. That's his goal. He'll be with us for all eternity. That's what he says heaven is all about. I will tabernacle with them forever. And I've come down to be a savior. Not just a judge. That's what the God of Islam is. He's just a judge. He's just a mad, angry, capricious judge. Do you know that? That's the theology of Islam. Not of the Bible, not the true God. I've come down to deliver. I've come down to preserve. I've come down to be a savior of my people. From the power of the Egyptians. Also to specific blessings. And also to bless my people. A land flowing with milk and honey. So very specific. And it's not just spiritual promise. That you'll get someday in the future. At the end of the age. After you're dead and gone. It's right now. There are blessings right now to be enjoyed. Every gift you have. Says Timothy. Is a, a blessed gift from God to be enjoyed. That's what he's doing. Behold. The cry of the sons of Israel. Verse 9. Has come to me. I hear it. I will send you, verse 10. I'm going to take action. Verse 12, I will be with you. 
Moses says, well, who are you? I'm supposed to go represent you. What's your name, God? And God gives Moses his personal name. Verse 11, 14. I tell them that I am who I am has sent you. I am. That's a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew phrase. It's a Hebrew name of God. It's where we get the name Yahweh. That's God's personal name. Elohim is not God's personal name. Elohim is a generic name for God, just deity. A rock can be Elohim. A stick, a false god. The true God can be called Elohim. But Yahweh, right here, I am who I am. That's his personal name. I am who I am. And he has a nickname. What's that? That's a shorter name of the full name. I am who I am is his full name. And his nickname at the end of verse 14 is I am. I am. It's part of the Hebrew verb to be, translated over into your Greek New Testament. It's basically the verb to be in your Greek text. Most fundamental basic verb in the English language as well. That's God's name. I am. Present tense. I am. I exist. I continually exist. I have always existed. I am eternal. I am uncreated. I am self-sustaining. I'm completely independent. I, am, uh, I exist uh, apart from any contingencies on anybody or anything. I am. I always have been. I always will be. That's what that means. It is loaded of what Yahweh means. I am the covenant God. He turns it into his, his covenant-keeping promises. I always will keep my covenants. That's my name. I am is my name. The almighty, transcendent God of the universe. I am is my name. And then you go up to the New Testament, especially the Gospel of John, and what is Jesus constantly saying about himself? Calling himself, I am. Before Abraham was born and sprang into existence, I am. John eight fifty eight. I already existed. I always have been. I am one with the Father. I am Yahweh. That's who I am. That's what Jesus said about himself. That's where he got this name from. So next to Genesis chapter 12, one of the most important passages in the Bible you need to have as a Christian is Exodus chapter 3 because that's where God reveals his personal name for the first time. And then you can understand the gospel of John in its fullness. Every time Jesus says, I am, like he does to the woman at the well, he literally said, I am. I am Yahweh. I am the eternal God. I'm not just a prophet. So God's making a move. Okay, one more. Then we'll go back to Luke 14. So God raises up Moses. He leads the charge. He has Aaron at his side. And he goes into Pharaoh, confronts him with ten miracles, plagues. God is with him every step of the way. And then Pharaoh relents, cries uncle, and lets the Israelites go. Leads them through the Red Sea, miraculous, on dry ground. They leave Egypt, and then God swallows the entire Egyptian army, including their chariots. Every single one of them is drowned to death. God did that. God killed the, the uh, Egyptians that were following, trying to harm his people. And then the Red Sea closed. Oh, one million plus Hebrews made it through on dry ground. They all turn around. They look back. You know what they saw? Dead bodies strewn all over the shore. Dead bodies strewn all over the shore. That's what the text says. And the Israelites looked back and saw all of Pharaoh's army on the shore. Dead bodies everywhere. Testifying to the faithful promises of God to protect his people and deliver them, and he did. And so now they are on a journey, and they travel for three months now. From the time of the Exodus, now three months later, Exodus 19, verse 1, in the third, exactly three months later after the Exodus, here's what happened. Moses leads them down to Mount Horeb in southern Sinai, the southern peninsula. He leads them to Mount Sinai. He's leading one million people down to that mountain. He knows where he's going because he's been there. He used to be, this is his territory as a shepherd. He knows where he's going. The mountain of God. Same mountain as the burning bush. So in the third month, exactly three months after the sons of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai where Mount Horeb was, the mountain of God. And when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Verse 3, Moses went up to God on the mountain. And Yahweh, I am, called to Moses from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, these one million Jews, tell them, Moses, you're my mouthpiece. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep... So now here's what you're supposed to tell the people, the million Jews. Moses, the Hebrews, tell them this. 
If indeed you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples from all for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Verse 7, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Here's the message. It came from God Almighty. We needed to tell everybody this is what God says. So everybody gets the message. All one million plus Jews, verse 8, this is key, verse 8. All the people answered together and said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And some of you are laughing because you, you know how the story goes. We are committed, absolutely, amen, Yahweh, you are our God, and Moses is our prophet. Did they believe it? Probably, for three days anyway. Because you keep reading the story three days later, they're grumbling against Moses, they're grumbling against God in 1450 B.C. And, that's, and yet that summarizes your Old Testament, if you haven't read it. From the time of Moses here on, God's people, the Jews who he wants to bless and bring the Savior to the world and says, listen to me, obey me, and I will bless you. And then initially they say, we are committed. And then for the next 1,400 years, they just keep violating that time and time again with disobedience. And then God keeps sending prophets time and time again to remind them of what they committed themselves originally to, to be God's people, to be set apart, to be holy, to obey his commandments, to follow him. To worship only him as the only God of the universe. They, they said they would do it. They vowed to do it. They vowed on their children that they would do it. All throughout Old Testament history. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. Keep sending prophets to remind them. Time and time again. And the judges. And then God chastens them and disciplines them. Because they're being sinful. And then, and then they wake up from, from their sin. And okay we'll obey. And then they fall back into sin again. And then God has to chasten them again. And spank them again. And over and over. And it's just this vicious, vicious cycle. That's Old Testament Israelite history. Nevertheless, God is still committed to them because he made his covenant not contingent upon their faithfulness, their goodness, whether they deserved it or could earn it because they can't, because they're sinful, fallen, and finite just like we are. We are partakers of the new covenant if you're a Christian, and the fact that we are partakers of the new covenant is not contingent upon us being able to keep the promises, right? Because we can't. So now, go back to Luke 14. So there's just a little bit of a Old Testament background so that you can get that flavor of God's commitment to the Jews, the Israelites, His people, and the expectation that He had for them. And we'll just walk through, and I'll give you the meaning now. Verse 16, God said to, here's the parable. Luke 14, verses 16 through 24. Jesus said to that man, that just rebuked Jesus. And the parable begins, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. Who's the man? In this story, the man is God. It is Yahweh. He's the man in the story. He's also the master in the story, verse 21. He's the master spoken of in verse 23. He is in charge. He's the God of the universe. He's the one having a banquet. We talked about last week, what is the banquet? That's heaven. That's eternal heaven. That's the end of the age, when Jesus returns, the grand supper of the... Jesus, the Lamb with His church, and Old Testament saints. That's what heaven will be like in the future, and even in the new heavens and the new earth. A banquet, a grand, luscious, beautiful, sacred banquet, hosted by God the Father and Jesus Christ, and all who believe through all the ages will be invited guests to celebrate with God in His presence. That's what this is looking to. This is an invitation to to heaven. A man was giving a big dinner. That's heaven, and that's the invitation. Uh... Invited many. The invitation really is the gospel. It's the good news. Is the gospel in the Old Testament? Yes. What is gospel? It's just good news. Is there good news in the Old Testament? Is is good news given by God to sinners in the Old Testament? Yes. Where do you first find the gospel? Of good news from a loving, merciful, saving, forgiving God to undeserving sinners. Where is it? It's in Genesis chapter 3. It's right after they disobey, fall into sin, threatened by God, judged by God, and then God immediately gives the gospel. Good news. There's rescue. I'm part of the Savior. That's Genesis 3.15. I'm going to send a Savior who will be the descendant of the woman. The gospel is all over the Old Testament. It is good. That's all. It is good news from a good God who wants to save sinners. And save them from himself. Save them from his own wrath. That's the good news. 
this man. This is God in the story. God is not a man. That's why it's a parable. It's a symbol. God doesn't have a body. God is not a man. God isn't confined. He's not finite. He's not an old man sitting on a throne up in heaven with a cane. The long white beard. No. We can't even imagine what God is like. It's a parable. Represents God. So God is giving a big dinner. He's given an invitation to heaven. The invitation is the gospel. Given and issued in a limited form in the Old Testament with its key ingredients, but then given full manifestation in the New Testament with the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, God saves. His, his life, his death, his resurrection. God has given a big dinner about heaven all throughout human history. He's invited many. Who's that? Specifically, the many is the Jews. Jews from the time of Abraham, beginning especially with the development of the nation with Moses and all throughout Old Testament history. They were invited continually again and again to God's banquet, the invitation of grace, the nation of Israel. It was a 1,400-year-long invitation. The save the date went on for that long, 1,400 years, inviting them over and over again. Isaiah and all these prophets getting very specific. Isaiah 55, lo, come, all who are weary and uh, thirsty, come. It's an invitation to salvation. So God's been giving a, he's going to give a banquet. He's been inviting the Jews specifically as a nation for 1,400 years. And then verse 17, at the dinner hour, what's that? Well, that was the coming of Christ. That's when Jesus the Savior came upon the scene. He came unto his own. He preached for three plus years. What did they do? They rejected him. That's the dinner hour. The dinner hour is redemption hour, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the time of the coming of Christ. And at the dinner hour, he, that's God, sent his slave. Who's his slave? Uh, commentators debate a little bit over this. Say, well, let's see, the slaves, those were Old Testament prophets. Maybe it's John the Baptist. No, it's Jesus. Jesus, the slave here, mentioned in verse 17, the slave is in verse 17, the slave is in verse 21, the slave is in verse 22, the slave is in verse 23. He is working in tandem and in conjunction completely, almost as an equal with the master throughout this whole thing regarding the banquet and the plan of redemption and the call to sinners. That is Jesus. He is the slave. 1 John 4, 14 is explicit when it says that God the Father, we know that God the Father has sent it's the exact same word. Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Sent. Philippians 2 says that Jesus became a slave. Jesus, it's the same word. Jesus became a doula. Jesus became a slave of the Father. He was sent by the Father for the work of salvation. Isaiah 53 specifically calls the Messiah that would be crucified. In Isaiah 53, 700 years before Christ, it calls the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would be crushed for our sins, it calls him a slave, the slave of God. This is Jesus. At dinner hour, Jesus came, invaded the world as a man in the incarnation, preached to his own people in Israel to say to those who had been invited, that's the Jews, and he, what did he say? Come, I've been calling you. He said that in chapter 13. I've been calling you for three plus years. Everything is ready now. Here I am. Scripture is fulfilled. That's Luke chapter 4. Scripture is fulfilled. But, huge but, verse 18, we saw that three excuses. They all, but they all alike began to make excuses. Collectively, the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. We already talked about that. That's John 1.11. They all. What are their excuses? You can just reduce the three down to materialism, the things of this world, the goods of this world, and relationships. And when you're talking to somebody who's not a Christian and they reject the gospel and aren't interested... You can pretty much boil it down to that. It's either their agenda, their relationships, or their stuff. That they use as an excuse to not heed the gospel and repent. That's how simple it is. It's an excuse. It's a veil. What are they veiling with those excuses? Well, they're veiling the fact of their pride. They're veiling the fact that they actually hate God. They're veiling the fact they don't want to admit they're sinners. They're veiling the fact that they don't want to admit they need a savior. They're veiling the fact that they want to be sovereign. They don't want a God over them. That's what they're hiding, actually, through these lame, superficial, temporal human excuses. The wickedness of the human heart. They're trying to hide it. That's what's at root. So that's the excuses, and they all made excuses. And that's sadly what the nation of Israel did when Jesus came the first time, 19, 18 through 20. 
So they all had a pathetic excuse, verse 21. And the slave, that's Jesus, I think, came back and reported to his master, to the father, that collectively the Jews have rejected their Messiah, and then the head of the household became angry. That's the master. That's God. God became angry. You know what God, how God reacts to those who don't heed his message, his gospel? He gets angry. When you give the gospel to somebody and they reject it, they throw it back in your face, they spit on it, they decline, they make excuses. Some of the excuses sound good, actually. You might be even sympathetic to some of the excuses of why somebody wouldn't receive Christ. That's not God's attitude. God is the creator. He owns you. He created you for his glory. He's, you've sinned against him. You've separated yourself from him. He's calling to you repentance. You need to repent. If you don't repent and come through Christ and Christ alone, you face eternal damnation. Separated from him. That's the message. Oh, I don't need that. I don't believe in that. That makes God angry. And that's what's going on here. The head, God, the head of the household, he became angry at rejection. And really, you could summarize, what, what makes God angry? Sin. Sin. Rebellion against him. Rebellion against his will. So God gets angry. God is a God of wrath. And his wrath is holy wrath. It's perfect wrath. It's perfect anger. It's not like ours. It's not capricious. It's deserved. It is appropriate. It's always fitting. It complements all of his other attributes. His wrath complements perfectly his love, grace, and mercy. His wrath accentuates his love, grace, grace, uh, grace patience, mercy. It highlights it. So he's angry. So he said to the slave, to Jesus, well, Jesus, you know what? You're not just the savior of only the Jews then. Or of the select elite Jews. Go out at once into the streets and the, the lanes in the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Don't just go to those who are self-sufficient. Let's invite people who are dependent, who are needy, and who know they're needy and feel like they're not deserving and they're despised and they're the outcast and they're ostracized by society. Go to them. That's what Jesus did. That typified his ministry, didn't it? He would have meals with sinners. He would heal the crippled. This, this characterized Jesus' ministry. This is the remnant of the Jews who would believe. The unlikely ones. The blind man in John 9 that believed. Contrary to everybody else around him. Embraced you. The, the 11 apostles, they were nobodies. They weren't synagogue rabbis. They were nobodies. They embraced the Savior. They were not dignified or respected. The women who followed Jesus, how they were exalted by Jesus for their faithfulness, their love, their devotion, their repentance, their commitment to Him. It's the remnant of the Jewish people. So there were some Jews, a few, the remnant. Jesus said that, and it's promised in the Old Testament. Well, that's good. A remnant of Jews will be saved in verse 22. And so the, the slave said to the master, God, well, what you commanded has done, been done. And so the remnant are being saved and well invited. But yet there's still more room. There's more room at the banquet. There's more room in heaven. And then God in his grace extends his mercy to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. That's verse 23. And the master said to the slave, Jesus, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them, persuade them, debate with them, um, reason with them. Can I use the word argue? Argue with them. Compel them, constrain them, urge them, exhort them diligently to come into the banquet, to come under the umbrella of God's grace. It's a very strong verb there. Compel them. Didn't need to compel the Jews to look to God. It's in their Bible. Gentiles were apart and separated from God. They weren't the precious people of God. They have to be compelled. With, and by the way, we don't compel them or persuade them by appealing to the emotions or the will, like some people would say. We persuade them with the truth of the gospel. We appeal to their conscience in the inner man by persuading them with the truth, the objective gospel. That's the only thing that can change them. 
So just to exhort you, compel them. When you do evangelism, you need to compel. You need to persuade. You need, you need to be specific. You need to not just give the gospel. You need to give a call to the gospel. That's what Paul did in Acts 17. He's given the gospel. He's reasoning, going back and forth. He doesn't relent. He's persevering. He doesn't give up. He stays there a long time. And at the very end, after giving the gospel, he calls them to repentance. Believe. God is calling everywhere, all men, to repent. How often do we do that in our evangelism? Kind of sneak it in through the back door. Oh, I hope I don't hurt their feelings. Don't close the deal. That's what compel means. Compel. Persuade. Call to repent. I was convicted by this when I was studying two weeks ago. So I tried it once during the week. Given the gospel, going back and forth, round and round in circles around the mulberry bush, 57 excuses. You know what? I'm going to bring it home. I'm going to persuade this person to repent and believe in Jesus. I tried it. It felt good. It's like, wow, powerful. It had nothing to do with me. It's just do what Jesus said. Compel them with the truth. Call them to repentance. Finish the job. Even with your relatives, who you've been talking to for years and years and years. Keep praying. Keep compelling. Take every opportunity. That's what it says. It's what you need to do with lost Gentiles. Compel them to come in to God's grace so that my house may be filled. God is a Savior, and he has joy in saving sinners. That's awesome, verse 23. That's something to go to lunch on, isn't it? Verse 24, for I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste of my dinner. That's sad. That's a, an indictment on all the Jews that lived in Jesus' day, collectively the nation, except for a few, the minority that would believe. First the 11 apostles, then the ladies that were following him, and then the 70, uh, and then 120 on the day of Pentecost. Then it, it started to grow a little bit to 5,000, right? in the book of Acts, and then grew to even more thousand, and maybe 10,000 plus. But that's just all Jews and all of Israel, which is a very, very small fraction. And then Paul tells us in Romans 9 through 11 that all throughout the church age, for the most part, Jews are hardened towards Jesus the Messiah. Only a few will be saved, only a minority. They are partially hardened, not fully hardened, so that's good news. Partially, some will be saved. And they're temporarily hardened. It's not forever. Because God made a vow. He made a pact. He made a covenant with Abram with the Jews that is eternal. It's the eternal Abrahamic covenant. And after the church age, at the end of the age, God promised, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring the Jews back. That's Deuteronomy chapter 30 and Leviticus 26. He even said it long before what happened. At the end of the age, I'm going to call you as you're scattered about all over the earth and bring you back unto myself because of my covenant to Abraham. And you can read all the wonderful blessed details in Zechariah 14. It's awesome. God is a gracious God. Let's go to the Father in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this day, uh, another Resurrection Sunday that we're privileged to celebrate, even after celebrating Resurrection Sunday last week. In your goodness to your people, you know that we need a respite. We need a break from life, from challenges, from disappointments, from ourselves. And that is the gift of the Lord's Day to worship with your people. So we don't want to presume upon that, take it for granted. Um, we want to celebrate that, bask in that, enjoy this time. How you fill us up as your spirit is present with us in our midst. We have the privilege of feeding on your truth from your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the majestic, blessed Savior. Give us a renewed love, passion for Jesus Christ. Always having sensitive and thankful hearts for his goodness of giving his life that our sins might be forgiven so that we can know you. We celebrate that this day, Lord. We rejoice in the salvation that you have entrusted to us, and we want you to receive all the glory for it. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.